morning we will be reading from Genesis 29, 31 through 30, 24. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he enabled her to become pregnant, while Rachel remained childless. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has looked with pity on my oppressed condition. Surely my husband will love me now. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, because the Lord heard that I was unloved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, now this time my husband will show me affection because I have given birth to three sons for him. That is why he was named Levi. She became pregnant again and had another son. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. That is why she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she could not give Jacob children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. <laughs> Jacob became furious with Rachel and exclaimed, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? She replied, here is my servant Bilhah. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I can have a family through her. So Rachel gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and gave Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has responded to my prayer and given me a son. That is why she named him Dan. Bilhah, Rachel's servant, became pregnant again and gave Jacob another son. Then Rachel said, I have fought a desperate struggle with my sister, but I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she gave her servant Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. Soon, Leah's servant Zilpah gave Jacob a son. Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Then Leah's servant Zilpah gave Jacob another son. Leah said, how happy I am, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. At the time of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found some mandrake plants in a field and brought them to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied, wasn't it enough that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes too? All right, Rachel said, he may go to bed with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must sleep with me, because I have paid for your services with my son's mandrakes. So he went to bed with her that night. God paid attention to Leah. She became pregnant and gave Jacob a son for the fifth time. Then Leah said, God has granted me a reward, because I gave my servant to my husband as a wife. So she named him Issachar. Leah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a son for the sixth time. Then Leah said, God has given me a good gift. Now my husband will honor me, because I have given him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. After that, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God took note of Rachel. He paid attention to her and enabled her to become pregnant. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Then she said, God has taken away my shame. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me yet another son. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a few moments of silence. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I am not Mike. Um, this podium looks a lot smaller when Mike is up here, actually. <laughs> uh, my name is Shana. I'm the Director of Family Ministries here at Littleton Christian. Um, I'm truly happy to be here with all of you this morning. Um, so happy to see your faces this day, um, to this day, this day. 
Very we're having very biblical language today. Um, <laughs> we're continuing our walk through Genesis this morning. We're still right in the middle of Jacob's narrative um, in this part about the patriarchs. Um, but before we get into the details of Jacob's family life that we just kind of read there, um, also, by the way, six kids, that makes me feel so tired. Okay. Um, I just want to remind us of a central theme of Genesis, um, blessing and curse. This is a big central theme in Genesis. And we've talked about this before, but um, it's kind of important um, with our passage today. So I want to just kind of give us a quick reminder. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. When God creates all things, back to the beginning of Genesis, he brings order out of chaos, and he blesses all that he creates. In the creation narrative, we see that God's blessing means life. It means abundance. He creates Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden full of abundance. He makes them stewards of this abundance. But he goes even further than that, and he lends Adam and Eve the power to create life, his power to create life, to reproduce. And he anoints them, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. So God creates the blessing of abundance and multiplication, gives humans this blessing, and anoints us to steward that blessing and carry it forward. Obviously, as we know, this does not all go according to plan. And in the end, when faced with choosing between the fruit of the tree of life, of blessing, humans instead choose to not trust God's words. They listen to the snake. They take the wrong fruit, the fake blessing, and find themselves cursed. From here on out, the relationship of humanity to abundance and multiplication is going to be rough. Humans will continue to strive after what God says is a curse, as though it's the blessing. And this is the pattern we continue to see all throughout Genesis, and I mean the whole Bible and the world. But God does not give up on his creation. He intends to see that the true blessing is realized. So he chooses Abraham. He promises Abraham abundance and multiplication, and that this family will become a divine vehicle, a conduit for the true blessing to spread to the whole world. Hopefully this is ringing bells. You may find all previous sermons on our website if you would like a reminder. <laughs> when you think about it, this anchoring of God's blessing to this one family has amazing potential, but it's also a huge liability for God. The metaphor I heard this last week um, from the Bible Project podcast is it's like taking a precious stone or like, I don't know, like the infinity stones from the Marvel movies <laughs> and handing them to a toddler. <laughs> And you watch, and you're kind of wincing, as we parents do sometimes, as your kids are hopping over sewer drains or playing around in mud, putting their fingers up their nose, all the things the toddlers do, mine included, when he was a toddler. Um, and maybe every once in a while, they, you know, look at these stones and wipe them off with their dirty shirt and show them to a friend, and maybe they have a little tea party or something, right? But I mean, it's kind of like, wait, who has the blessing? Those guys? bunch of guys who don't do much to deserve the blessing, who actually end up spreading just about as much curse as they do blessing. Those guys? Yeah. Those people. Us people. And God shows us over and over again the lengths that he will go to save us from ourselves. I wanted to remind us of the big theme of blessing and curse in Genesis because Jacob's story is all about a man who is fighting, scheming, and grabbing for something that God has already offered him freely. God intends for Jacob to receive it. He tells Rebecca, his mother, so when she prays to him. You know, Abraham occasionally acts like the snake in the garden, the deceiver, but he occasionally gets things right, too. His grandson, however, seems to be born a snake. 
He lies and he schemes from the very get-go. Jacob either doesn't know what God has said about him or he doesn't trust it. With bowls of stew, he manages to steal abundance, ruling, and multiplication from his brother. Jacob's scheming lands him in 20 years of exile, during which the deceiver meets his match. He jousts with his uncle Laban, both doing their best to get what they can out of the other two deceivers. During this time in exile, Jacob's family grows. He ends up with four wives. But these four wives mirror and multiply the rivalry among each other, each jockeying for the top position. And it's within this environment of scheming, rivalry, and competition that Jacob's 12 sons are born. Take us back to Genesis 3 for a minute. In Genesis 3, we're told that the curse will lead to men abusing and dominating women and creating painful environments in which children are conceived. The blessing to be fruitful and multiply is now full of grief as humans strive to grab and take. And this is exactly what we see here in Jacob's family and in this narrative. We've one woman unloved by her husband, another barren with no children and jealous of what the other has. And yet, even in the midst of this broken family situation, God's providence is on full display. You can't miss it. The blessing is beginning to become a reality. And the narrator here is very clear. God is the one who opens and closes Leah and Rachel's wombs. No one else and nothing else. He enables them to become pregnant or not. When the women try children, matters into their own hands. They use magic, superstition, the mandrakes. No children are allowed to come of this, making it indisputable that God is in control. Leah, and to a certain extent Rachel, do seem to understand that the blessing of sons comes from God. You can see that in how the women choose to name each son and how they talk about each son um, as a blessing. But they're both so trapped in their circumstances, they really cannot fully rest in and appreciate God's great gifts to them. They're living a half-life. Side note, you might be wondering about the mandrake thing. Mandrakes are a real plant. They are not just something from Harry Potter. Do I have a picture? I might have a picture. Ha! <laughs> yes, um, they are a real plant. The roots tended to grow in a way that looked very human-shaped. Um, and so it was thought that these roots would increase a woman's fertility um, and make her more likely to get pregnant. And, and that's, that's all there is to it. So probably a wise decision that J.K. Rowling took a different direction with her version of the Mandrakes in a book series written for kids. Okay. Anyways, back to our narrative. Um, there are a few other observations I want to share with you about this episode in Jacob's life. I often have this question in my mind, um, and I'm certainly not the only one, this question of, why us, Lord? Like, why choose to partner with humans? We are so very flawed. We fail so often to spread the blessing, and instead, we spread the curse. Um, I don't have a complete answer to this question. It's one of those things we just kind of have to trust God's words on. This is what he's decided his plan is. But I am struck here that God doesn't just indiscriminately dole out sons um, to each woman. I mean, his goal is to give the blessing, right? What does it matter what woman has what son? They all become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're all Jacob's sons at the end of the day. And yet, Genesis tells us, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. He shows tenderness towards Leah. He has compassion on her. He hears her pain and loneliness, and he meets her there. Leah, the unloved wife, becomes the mother to Judah, the line of King David, and Levi, the line of the priests. I am struck by God's love for Leah, the unloved. 
I think that God's love for us might play a large part in answering my original question. There's something else that stands out pretty notably about Jacob in this narrative and over his whole life. Maybe you've noticed it. Jacob does not pray to or petition God, like ever. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed this. Jacob is prayerless. He'll occasionally acknowledge when something is not in his control, is obviously in God's control, as we see in his response to Rachel, when Rachel asks him for a son. Um, But, uh, you know, Jacob doesn't pray for Rachel on her behalf, as Abraham does for Abimelech's household, or as Isaac does for Rebekah when Rebekah is barren. Jacob kind of stumbles into this providential marriage. No prayer or praise involved. Unlike the faithful servant of Abraham, the two well scenes, the one with Abraham's servant and the one with Jacob, are in stark contrast to one another. The servant who prays, receives, and then praises God and Jacob, who does none of those things. Rebecca and Isaac begin a peaceful marriage, at least in the beginning, whereas Jacob is troubled by deceitful marriage arrangements. Jacob might be strong, able to work hard and have a large family, but he is spiritually impotent. He is far from the spiritual leader of his family, and his family suffered greatly. This has caused me to reflect a lot this past week about the role that prayer plays in my own family life. We could do a whole other series on prayer, you know, the, the who's and the how's and the what's and the when's and the why's, um, but we're not going to go down that road for today. We're just going to let this narrative um, speak to us about what it has to say about prayer, and I think it invites us to reflect on the prayerless life and the consequences of a prayerless life. It seems to me that when the people we've been studying in Genesis pray, when they look first to God, they are reaching for the source of the true blessing. You can tell me later if you disagree with my hypothesis. Prayer aligns us with God, fixes our eyes on God as provider and comforter. When we reach for other things first, other people, other fixes, plans, security, fear, um, whatever it might be, and we take on, then we allow those things to take the place of God, um, the source of the true blessing, we reach instead for the curse. We are not reaching for the blessing. When we place church leaders or celebrities or politicians on the pedestal and we look to them for life and abundance, the curse is spread, sometimes in massive ways, when these same people abuse and oppress others. The curse brings scarcity and pain and conflict, exile and death. And these are all things I've seen in our world in just the last few months. It's heartbreaking. So just a few weeks ago, um, my six-year-old son was helping me unload the dishwasher. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm humming, and we're talking, and, you know, we're just doing our thing, and he's taking silverware and pretending to magically open drawers, and, you know, pew, 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 and whatever it is that six-year-olds do when we're unloading the dishwasher. Um, and for some reason, like, as I'm just, like, humming and working, I start just humming the doxology um, to myself. And um, my poor son, <laughs> he just looks at me, and um, you've probably had this experience with kids, and he just, like, wilts, and he just starts crying, like, his whole face, like, he just starts crying. And I'm like, what's, like, what's wrong, bud? What's, did you cut yourself? You okay? Um, and, and he's like, I, I, uh, I can't remember the last time he sang the, the, do, the doxology. And what if he forgets it? And he doesn't want to forget it because he loves that song. And it's an important song about God. And he just, and this just goes. And so, you know, we take deep breaths and we calm down and we make a plan for when we're going to sing the doxology. Um, we had big emotions that day <laughs> in the Mickey household. <laughs> um, 
And as anyone, you know, if you have experience with kids, you probably know that they're, um, you know, that probably had more to do with just changes in anxiety and things like that, and less to do with how concerned he was about habits of prayer um, in his life. <laughs> um, but I did think to myself, like, you know, God, help my heart react just like that when habits of prayer go neglected or begin to fade from the front of my mind. And as I mentioned earlier, um, God is constantly demonstrating the lengths he will go to save humans from themselves, from ourselves. And we'll see if we look ahead when we get to chapter 32 that God will have to physically hurt Jacob to get him to stop scheming and just receive the blessing that's already been given. And it's in this encounter with God that Jacob's strength in his body is removed and it's replaced by strength of prayer. And prayerful Jacob will see the source of the true blessing. More on that on a future Sunday. So back here in chapter 30, verse 24 marks the end of our birth narrative. The blessing was, well, we've got one son left. because Benjamin's coming still, but for the most part, um, it's the end of the birth narrative. Um, the blessing of be fruitful and multiply uh, is, uh, is realized, but for Jacob's family, it's surrounded by hardship and suffering and toil and pain. This is such a picture of the human condition, though, isn't it? Like, sometimes the gifts that come our way are wrapped up in really difficult circumstances. Sometimes it's hard to see what God is doing in our life in the moment. Sometimes we ask for and reach for the curse and not the blessing. Sometimes we are agents of the blessing. Sometimes we are agents of the curse. But no matter what, we can be absolutely certain that God, in his providence, brings grace and hope and mercy. In his grace, God uses fallen, fallible, and forgotten people in his plans. As Bruce Waltke puts in his commentary on Genesis, in spite of Jacob's prayerlessness and Rachel and Leah's rivalry, God blesses the family with 12 sons. His grace is greater than our sins, and his purposes will not be thwarted by them. It is God's grace and mercy, not the human merit or actions that establishes God's kingdom. All of us have probably found ourselves or will find ourselves in situations that block us from knowing the fullness of life, like many in our story today. We know the anguish of Leah, the jealousy of Rachel. E.F. Roop, what a name, in his commentary on Genesis, writes, to those caught in a half-life, the Bible offers no reproach or platitudes, but God's remembering. To those longing for love or stagnated by a sterile world, the faith offers no blame, no jargon, but one who has come that we might have a full life. The Bible takes our agony utterly seriously, even while offering hope. We have God's gracious gift of hope, and we have his remembering. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. You are the God from whom all blessings flow. God, you, you give us so much love and so much grace and so much, so much guidance to reach for the true blessing. God, we just have so many reasons to praise you. God, as we, as we go forward... Um, would you, just, would you just make us agents of your blessing? 
Make us conduits of your blessing in Littleton, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes. God, just use us for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen.